0: When you uh, think of all the great philosophical or theological questions that have been asked in human history, for example, what is the meaning of life? There is perhaps none greater than this one. What came first? The chicken or the egg? Okay, well, maybe that's not such an important question, but I want to ask you one that relates to the chicken and egg debate. In the Christian faith, what comes first? Your identity? In Christ, or your obedience to Christ? What comes first? Chicken and egg may not matter, but I can't stress enough how important this question is for us. For many Christians, including me, for the first part of my life, the answer to that question is my obedience comes first because it is through my obedience that I earn God's approval. It is through my obedience that I earn God's identity. I think this is true for many today. We look at life as if it's some sort of a scale up in heaven, and if the good outweighs the bad in my life, in the end of it, the big guy upstairs will say, come on in those pearly gates. But the gospel, the thing Brad talked about this morning, the good news of Jesus Christ says it couldn't be any different. It's the complete opposite. Our identity is a free gift that has been given to us by God's grace received through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is out of that new identity that our obedience flows. There couldn't be a bigger difference. Between those two perspectives. And the reason I want to share that with you this morning is because we are starting the second half of the letter to Ephesians. If you weren't here last spring, we made our way through Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 in a series we called Be Convinced of Who You Are in Christ. And the reason for that is Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about our identity once we have received Christ as our Savior. We are given these tremendous things, and we spent all last spring talking about that new identity. In fact, we thought it might be good to remind you of some of the things we are in Christ. So if you remember, we did a video at the end of that series as pastors. Why don't we remind ourselves? It's good to remember, right? We talked about that last week. Let's remember what Ephesians 1 through 3 was all about. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You are the recipient of grace upon grace. You were chosen before the creation of the world. Intentionally, God chose you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are holy. You are blameless. You are adopted into God's family. Be convinced that you are his son. Be convinced that you are his daughter. You are heirs. You are redeemed. Your sins are forgiven. You are marked and sealed in Christ through the Holy Spirit. You were dead in your sin, but you are alive. You are alive. You are alive in Christ. Know this. You are greatly loved. You are saved by grace. By grace, you've been saved. Jesus didn't come to fix you. He came to give you a whole new life. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You are God's handiwork. You are a carrier of God's glory. You are a strong, powerful force for the kingdom of God. You are God's people. You have been reconciled in order to be reconcilers. You are part of his household. You are God's house, his holy temple. Cherry Hills, you are his church. We are his church. And we pray that you would grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. We pray that you know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. That is some good news. That is Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 and this fall we're going to make a clear shift in focus because this is something Paul often does in his letters if you've ever read some of Paul's letters in almost every single one of them he will spend the beginning of the letter and it's not always directly in the middle of the letter but he'll spend the beginning of every letter talking about who we are in Christ or talking about what we should believe or doctrine is another word that people have used to describe that but about halfway through usually he'll make a clear shift in focus and start talking to the church that's us still today about what that actually means for how we live and so this fall you look at this side of the banner here we're going to learn what it means to now live out our identity in Christ I've always liked to think of the Christian faith this way it's just becoming who I already am in Christ I'm becoming who I already am in Christ let me use an analogy the the day I was born my parents gave me a name And that became my identity. Stephen William Patsy. it says it on the birth certificate. From that day on, that was my name. That was my identity. For the rest of my life, from that day on, it's simply been about becoming who I already am. In a similar way, uh, Christ, when we receive him as our personal Savior, we are told in the Gospels that we are born again. That we are born into a new life, that old life that we had is dead and gone, and we have been born again into a new life, and we are given these amazing gifts that you just heard about on that video. That has become our identity, and our purpose becomes to now take the rest of our lives to become who we are in Christ. All this is just a lengthy way of me of saying obedience, outward actions, behaviors are the result of our new identity They don't get us our identity. Obedience is just becoming who we already are in Christ. It is the natural outcome of somebody who has been born into God's family. Because listen, when we are in Christ, we are becoming like Christ. And obedience to Christ is our natural response. If that is not taking place in my life, I have to ask myself the honest question, Am I really in Christ? So without further ado here, in my opinion at least, is what the key question is going to be for us throughout the rest of this series. What does our new identity in Christ mean for the way we live? What does it mean for the way I live? If everything I just heard in that video is who I am, how does that impact the way I now live in this life. And the entire fall, honestly, we're going to be spent answering this question. And my hope, my prayer as we begin this series is not that you will see Ephesians chapters 4 through 6 as a new list of rules that we have to follow in order to live up to God's standards. They are the path God has given us to become who we are in Christ, a tremendous difference in mentality there, right? Why don't you take your Bibles and turn them to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be starting in verse 1. If you're getting used to where that is in your Bible, Ephesians is probably about three-quarters of the way back, sandwiched in between books like Galatians and Philippians. And if you didn't bring a Bible, we always encourage you that there's a black Bible there in the seat in front of you. In fact, if you don't own a Bible, take that as our gift. We'd love for you to have that. And you can find Ephesians 4.1 on page 815 this morning. As you're turning there, why don't we turn our attention once again to prayer? Lord, the reason we need to pray right now is because we're going to be talking about something Satan hates, which is the unity of the church. He has come to seek and divide, and he does a pretty good job at it when we let him. So we pray that you would equip us this morning with these words so that we could pursue what you want us to pursue together as a church, which is unity and oneness. Help us to do that for your glory, as we sang. Not not for our glory, not for Cherry Hills, but for the glory of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, in verse 1, Paul is going to waste no time in answering the question. of what our new identity has to do with how we are to live. Can you read that out loud there with me? Print it on your notes. Verse 1 of Ephesians 4 says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Don't you just love how Paul sums up in one sentence what I just spent five minutes trying to say? Because of who you are, live a life worthy. Live a worthy life of the gifts you've been given in Christ. I have to say I actually like some of the older translations of this verse. They translate that word live as walk, which is probably more accurate there. Uh, So I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, Paul is saying. And he would often use this metaphor throughout his writings, this metaphor of the Christian life being like a walk, indicating... That there should be steady progress that takes place in our life. Clearly, that means that we will never one day arrive at our destination, right? Are any of you perfect yet? Have you arrived and you can say, I am like Jesus pretty much in every single area of my life right now? No. But the good news of the word walk is that's not what God's expecting. He's not expecting perfection, What he is expecting, however, that is throughout our life, we are going to continue to make steady progress towards our goal, and our goal is to become like Jesus Christ. And so we walk. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the new identity you've been given in Jesus Christ. So many Christians reach a plateau in their spiritual lives and they think, I've arrived. I go to church, I read my Bible. I do good things. That's not what Paul is urging us to do. He is urging us to become who we are in Christ. He says it this way in Philippians 3, some of these most famous words he ever wrote, right? I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That's our pursuit. That's where we're walking. I want to know Christ. I want to be like Christ, but notice not that I have already obtained all this. Well, Paul hasn't arrived. How can I say I've arrived or have already arrived at my goal? But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Isn't that interesting? But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind me, straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Sound familiar? Become who you are. I'm becoming who I already am in Christ. And just sum all that up, the Christian life is not a passive thing. You don't just one day wake up and go, I'm more like Jesus today. It is a steady progression. It's a steady walking in the path that he provides for us. Now, that leads me to asking the next question is, what is a worthy life then? What does it look like for me to live a life worthy? If you recall a couple weeks ago, Jeff defined the word worthy as to give weight to something. And so if I were to say something like, she is a worthy opponent, we mean her gift is equal to ours. We give weight to her gifts. When we say he is worthy of a race... What do we mean? We mean he has probably gone above and beyond what we expected of him. We give weight to the work he has given to us. And in the same way, Paul is saying here that our lives as people in Christ, we should bear weight. They should bear weight to the great blessings that Jesus has given us. A worthy life means giving weight to Christ in all things. Now look, again, don't get the chicken and egg mixed up here. Paul does not say, if you obey me, I will bless you, like he does to the Old Testament Jews. I mean, that was the promise he gave them, right? If you obey, I will bless you. That's not the promise here. He says, I've already blessed you. I've already blessed you. Now, in response to my love and grace, obey me. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Give my life the weight it deserves in your life. Now, how do we do this? Well... As I said, the rest of Ephesians 4 through 6 is honestly going to answer this question. You're going to come back each week, and we're going to talk about what it looks like to live a worthy life. But he starts right away in verse 2. But before you look at it, don't look, don't cheat. I'm going to ask you to consider something. What do you think the very first thing Paul is going to say that exemplifies a worthy life in Christ? Like, if you were writing this to one of your friends who just became a Christian or something, and you're like, live a life worthy of your new identity in Christ. What's the very first thing you would mention to your friend? Think about it. what. What do you think your answer to that would be? If I were to take uh, the temperature of the Christian world right now, I would say Paul is definitely going to start with something about our sexuality. Because that seems to be the thing we talk most about. Or maybe he'll review the Ten Commandments and talk about all those external bad things we do, like stealing and lying and cheating. Those, what I would just say, outward results of something that takes place in our heart. And it is to our heart that Paul first turns. Make no mistake, friends. Paul is certainly going to talk about our sexuality. Ephesians, maybe more than any other book, lifts up this idea of marriage and what marriage is, and we're going to get there. And make no mistake, he's going to talk about all those external things that get in our way of living the life of Christ like stealing and cheating. But the thing he goes for first is our heart. Because he knows it is from the heart that all of our external actions flow. So look at verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. You want to live a worthy life? Be humble. Be gentle be patient, love one another. Let's break that down a sec. Paul says, be completely, darn, not just a little bit, completely humble. First thing Paul says, the first thing Paul says that we can know whether or not we're living a worthy life, giving weight to Christ in our lives is humility. Now, unless you've ever studied the day and age in which The new testament was written you don't realize probably how revolutionary this concept of humility as a virtue was the greco-roman world spat on this idea of humility for them the goal in life was to become self-sufficient they thought the ideal was the self-made man have you ever read any ernest hemingway novels like, that's who we're supposed to become, like the heroes in his kind of novels, right? It's not that much different today, by the way, right? We're fed from the beginning, if we've grown up in this country, that our goal in life is to be self-sufficient, to be a self, self-made man or woman. But for a person in Paul's day, understand that humility suggested servility, and that is something they despise. Servanthood? Blah. One commentator even noted that it was Christians who first coined the word humility as a positive thing. Isn't that fascinating? Never before had humility had a positive meaning before Christ. And the reason for that is why. It's because we have the cross. We have the Son of God who left the glories of heaven and humbled himself. To become obedient to a death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2. To this, friends, in the Greek world, this is what Paul called foolishness, right? They thought this was foolish, a humble savior. But aren't we glad that is who he is? And he expects us to be the same. If we are becoming like him, we are to be humble. Why start with humility? Well, because he knows, as C.S. Lewis said, pride is the root of all other sin. We are all born with this instinct that life centers around me. It's about me. And we were all seeking are the best for ourselves. The goal of my life becomes to reach the top of whatever mountain it is I have in my mind that's going to give me satisfaction, right? That might be prosperity, that might be status, that might be whatever it is for you. It is not natural for the human race to be humble. I know it isn't for me, but as Christians, we have come to realize that we have no room for pride. Why? Because when you come to Christ, you take the most humble act of all by admitting, I can't save myself. That takes humility. I can't save myself. No matter how good I am, no matter how hard I try, I can't do it. I have to receive this gift from Christ. And so what that means is it doesn't really make a difference. Whether you're rich or poor, educated or uneducated, civilized or uncivilized, good or bad, we're all level at the cross we have all had to humble ourselves to the humble savior who gave up his life for us friends this attitude of humility is so huge for Paul because he's about to get into you know the unity of the church this is paramount for God what he wants for us is to have unity with one another in the church so what's that going to mean It's going to mean taking up the same attitude of Jesus constantly with one another because if I take up pride, unity isn't even possible. So we are to take up humility, laying down my life so that others might be lifted up. That's humility. Second characteristic Paul mentions is related to humility. It's gentleness in the NIV, but I like the word actually meekness. Maybe some of your translations have the word meekness. To us today, meekness means, well, what do you think of? What do you think of when you hear the word meek? Meek is weak, <laughs> right? Meek is passive, and yet this was a word used to describe Jesus, and I hope you don't think of Jesus as either of those two things, because he certainly wasn't. Meekness, a quick, simple definition of meekness is strength under control. This was the word, interestingly enough, the Greeks would use, of a wild animal that had been caught in, And domesticated. So think about little Fifi back at home. Believe it or not, at one time, your pet poodle Fifi was a wild animal. Now Fifi has been made meek. She has been caught and domesticated. She at one time had strength, but she now keeps that strength under control. And in the same way, in the church, we all have strength, right? We have strength with our words. We might have strength physically. We can all power up on somebody, And Paul says, in the church, there should be meekness. You should keep that strength under control. Third posture we're to have towards others is patience. He even defines that one for us, bearing with one another. We are to be patient, not short-tempered, especially with one another in the church. As you know, this is very difficult because people in the church can be kind of annoying. It's never me, of course, right? And it's never you. But other people, all of us can be a little annoying at times. All of us can be a little bit irritating. And the temptation is to get blunt with one another, impatient with one another. Paul says that isn't the way to unity. It isn't the way to oneness. To take an imperfect analogy, I'll stay in the canine realm for you in case you didn't like that Fifi one you ever seen it when there's an older big dog and a puppy with that big dog? What is the puppy doing? It's going crazy all over that big dog, right? Like jumping on it, biting it, slapping the thing with it paw. And what is the big dog? does How does the big dog usually respond? Patiently. Bears with it. At any moment, this big dog could like gnash its teeth and put this puppy in its place. But more often than not, the big dog just bears with this little puppy's energy. And in the same way, we are to see one another's annoyances and irritations and we bear with them. You know why? Because at one point, I've realized I can be just as annoying. I can be just as irritating. Everyone has their own faults. Finally, love Love is the posture that glues all of these together. For a church to have unity, there better be love, right? Can you have unity without love? The word Paul uses is agape. If we regard people with agape, it means nothing they do will make us seek their harm. Nothing they do will cause us to seek them anything else but their highest good. Even if they hurt us and insult us, we will choose love. I can't do that without Christ in me. I can't, because remember, at the moment I was born, it's all about me. And so when somebody's insulting me, I turn it into me. But instead, we are to take on this love, this crazy love that God demonstrated for us. And really, that's the reason we do it. Because again, we stand at the foot of a Savior who showed us unbelievable love, even though we spit on him, even though we walked away from him even though we chose to live a life apart from him. How can I not offer that same love to my brothers and sisters in this church? When we give weight to these virtues, when we have this posture with one another, humility, gentleness, patience, love, we can now pursue what God has in mind for the church, which is unity. Now, before I go there, though, I just want to make one last note. Do you notice what it takes for every one of these postures to exist in your life? It takes the obliteration of self. What Jesus called dying to self. Yeah? It means I am not going to make myself the center of the world. I am going to die to that kind of thought so I can lift others up in my midst. It is that, it is that alone that will provide unity within any church body. William Barclay uh, a commentator says it this way if you can read this up on the screen as long as self is at the center of things then oneness or unity which is where Paul is about to turn can never fully exist in a society or church where self dominates people cannot form anything but a disintegrated collection of individualistic and warring units but when self dies and Christ springs to life within our hearts then comes the peace the oneness which is the great hallmark of the true church. Amen. It is to this oneness that we will now turn. What does a worthy life look like? It means taking up the posture of humility and gentleness and patience and love so that we can pursue unity with one another in the church. Look at verse 3 with me. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. A couple quick things to point out here. First, notice unity is something we can't create. We can't just muster it up. It was something Christ did for us, right? Christ brought all of us as individuals, unique individuals, each with our own annoyances and faults and irritations. And he formed us into one body. What was he thinking? I don't know. I'm kidding. He had a grand vision. He had a grand vision in mind. So listen, unity took place at that moment. We all became a part of the body of Christ the moment Christ became in our lives. Now, don't we hear this all the time, though, that we can create unity? Turn on the news. If we just have more education, if we just have more money, if we just have more this or this or this, we can't muster unity on our own. But we can keep it. Or we can do our darndest to keep it. And that's what Paul encourages us as the church to do. The command is to keep the unity at all costs. Whatever it takes in your life, promote unity. Don't hinder it. How do we hinder unity? Hint, look back at verse 2. That's how we hinder it. By taking up postures opposite of humility and gentleness and patience and love. If I'm prideful, is unity even possible? If I regard my own rights as primary, will I be patient with you? If I have a critical spirit, will I be able to see others in love? No. Unity requires a heart change, which is why Paul started where he did. Now listen, another thing to mention here, is unity always possible in the church? You think that's a trick question? All you need to do is look around at the thousands of denominations that exist in our world and know the answer to that one. It's not always possible. I think it breaks the heart of Jesus. But it isn't always possible. And we're going to talk about some of the reasons that it isn't possible. But what this command really is reminds me of what Paul says in Romans twelve eighteen. When we're in a personal conflict with others, he says, If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The assumption is it's not always possible. And again, I'll talk about when those times are in a little bit. But before we go there, last thing I want to point out about unity. Because right now, if you don't know it, whether you know it or not, unity is a buzzword in the church world. There's all types of talk about we want to become more ecumenical. And that's a good thing in many ways. Uh, But... Unity and what people mean a lot by unity today is maybe not what Paul's actually talking about here. You see, what people mean a lot when they say the word unity is what they're actually wanting is uniformity. They want everybody to be the same as them. I've heard enough people talk about how the church should have unity, but what they really mean is that we should all be the same. Let me make a helpful distinction unity is something that can only come from within. It can only come from within, from the heart. Uniformity is a pressure that can come from the outside. You can't force someone to have unity, but you can force somebody to be uniform. We've seen that through uh, you know, regimes all throughout the history of our world. Right? Think about the Nazis. They were forcing uniformity. I'll just give you a kind of a silly example of the difference between these two. Imagine right now in this room, the man who was blind from the Gospel of Mark met the man who was blind from the Gospel of John. And they began to share their stories together. And the the man from Mark said, yeah, so there I was. And Jesus just spoke the word, and I received my sight. And the man from John says, no, 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 no. That's not how Jesus heals. The way Jesus heals is he spits in the mud. He spits in the dirt. He makes some mud, and he rubs it on your eyes and then tells you to go wash yourself in the pool of Salam. And he goes, no, no, that's not how Jesus heals. He just speaks the word, and you're healed. And pretty soon, one of them's like, I'm not sure you actually have even been healed. And so they formed their own camps, right? The Muddites and the anti (laughs) muddites Do you think that's what would happen if those two guys got in the room together? Of course not. They would say, oh, that's interesting. That's how he chose to do that with you. That's not how he did it with me. But they would have a unifying purpose. I was blind, but now I can see. And Jesus is the one who gave me my sight. Friends, even if we brought all the greatest theologians who ever lived in this room right now, There would be disagreements on minor issues, but at their heart, all of them would have a unified spirit. They would be unified in their purpose. This is really why the metaphor of the body that Paul uses throughout his letters is so brilliant. It is brilliant. You can't plumb the depths of this metaphor. Each part of the body is made up of many different parts, right? There are hands, there are feet, there are eyes, but they all come together to form one unified thing, the body. This is why we pray for another church every Sunday. We prayed for Western Oaks this morning, not because we think they should be just like Cherry Hills, that they should be uniform with us. It's because we believe we are unified with the churches in this city for a greater purpose, which is the glory of Jesus Christ. So if you've ever wondered what that's all about, that's what it's about. We know we're going to have minor disagreements on issues. But in the things that matter, And the things that really matter, we are unified in purpose. So you will want to ask the question, what are the things that matter? That's a great question to have. And Paul is going to answer that in verses 4 through 6. In fact, many people believe that these verses we're about to read were an early creed that the church would declare together. These were the foundations, in other words, of the faith. If we are to have unity with one another and other believers in the body of Christ, these seven things we're going to talk about must exist, otherwise... Unity is built on a shaky ground. Unity must be built on biblical foundation. And Paul is going to give us the foundation where our unity comes from in verses 4 through 6. Verse 4 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What word do you hear a lot there? One. What makes us one? Paul gives us seven foundational truths that unite all true believers. Number one, one body. What is Paul referring to here when he says the body? Church. Church with a capital C. The fact that though there are many individual churches, Western Oaks, Cherry Hills, Westside, whatever, you name them, there's many individual churches. There is but one church with a capital C, and the church comes under the authority and the headship of Jesus Christ. Last week, if you were here, we read the Apostles' Creed together, and there's a line there that says, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And I had a couple come up, uh, maybe after this service or the other one, and they asked a great question. They asked, what are we saying when we say that? Are we saying we believe in the Roman Catholic Church? And the answer to that is, you notice that the word Catholic was actually lowercased, And in its original meaning, Catholic just means universal. It just means the church, past, present, and future all over the world that belongs under the authority and the headship of Jesus Christ. And so when we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we're saying we believe in the body that Christ started and who Christ is the head. Only he knows, right? Only he knows who's really a part of that body. But he knows, and he has brought that body together to form the church There are many churches, but there is only one church. You understand this? Number two, there is one spirit. Who is he referring to here? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who indwells in every true believer at the moment of your conversion. One of the things that unites all of us, if we are truly in Christ, is that we have Christ's spirit in us. We share his spirit. We don't have different spirits. We have the same spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul writes, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. There's one Holy Spirit. And I love how the word in Greek, spirit, is pneuma. It also can mean breath. If there is no breath in the body, what does that mean for the body? It's dead so if the holy spirit is not present in our midst what does that mean we're just playing church there's one spirit that binds us and unites all of us together third there is one hope this is referring to the return of jesus honestly when he will come and fulfill all the promises that we look forward for him To fulfill in our lives. For most Christians these days, hope means much the same as it does to the rest of the world. Kind of a lukewarm optimism. Yeah, that'll be great when Jesus does that. But for the church saying these words, hearing these words, reading these words, this is what kept them going. The hope. The promise that he would come. Friends, this is the secret of unity among Christians, right? We all have one hope of Christ redeeming the world. That's our hope. That's our goal. That's what we're a part of. That's what unifies all of us, right? That's what we're pursuing as individual churches. Fourth, there is one Lord. And this, is, of course, is referring to this is the easiest question I'll ever ask you Jesus. Jesus. He is the Lord who came to live for us, die for us, and would one day come for us. We are joined together in the body of Christ under the lordship of Christ. He is the one to whom we have given our lives and to whom we have surrendered and to whom we serve. Closely related, there is one faith. Paul does not agree that there are many ways to salvation. There is but one way, and it is faith in the one Lord, Jesus Christ. Here he is saying emphatically, I'll just say it again, there are are not a variety of ways to God. There is but one way to be saved, faith in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus never shied away from making this statement. In John 14, 6, he would say these famous words, right? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation is found in no one other than Jesus Christ. There can be no unity in the church without Sadly, there are many churches today who have discarded that. So again, can there always be unity? No. Because we hold that there's one faith. And others may not hold to that. So we are fundamentally different at that part. We make every effort to keep the unity of the church. But in these foundations, we have to stand. Six, there is one baptism. Now we get into the fun stuff, right? Whoa, what's he going to talk about here? Let me talk about a thing that has divided churches. Important to realize here what Paul is not talking about is the mode of baptism. He's not talking about whether we dunk or dip or pour or whatever else. He's talking about something that takes place in the life of every true believer at the moment you receive Christ as your Savior. We saw it in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Can you flash that back up there? Where we were all baptized. By what? Baptism just means immersed. We were all placed into God's family at the moment of conversion. That is what binds us all together. We were once dead to sin and trespasses, but we have been baptized into a new life. A new life in Christ Jesus. So listen. We're not talking about a second experience you have to have after your conversion. That is not what Paul is talking about, a second baptism or something like that. He's simply talking about being baptized into the family of God. And finally, there is but one God and Father. One God. He is the Father of all. The greatest thing about our Christian God is not that he is king, not that he is judge, though he is those things, but that he is Father. That he is Father. The Christian idea of God begins in love. That he is the father of all. That meant a good deal in this day when this was written. Because if you've been a part of this church, you know we've gone through different letters of Paul's where the biggest issue keeping the church from having unity was the fact that there were Gentiles worshiping with Jews and Jews saying that in order for you to be a part of this church, you have to get circumcised first. And Paul says, I will not have any of that nonsense. There is but one God and father of all. These external things that we make important That's uniformity. What he's after is unity. These are the foundations of unity, friends. And as we said, we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. Close with a quick story. Harry Ironside was on a train once. He was a famous Bible uh, preacher. And a German lady saw him reading his Bible and asked if she could join him. So she did. And the next day, a Norwegian guy joined them. And pretty soon, 26 people were reading their Bibles together, doing a Bible study on this train ride. At the end of the trip, the German lady asked Harry Ironside, uh, he asked, What denomination are you? And he replied with these words, I belong to the same denomination that David did, talking about David from the Old Testament. She said, Well, what is that? I didn't know David was a part of any denomination. Ironside said, David wrote that he was a companion of all them that fear God and keep his precepts. And the woman said, yeah, yeah, that is a good church to belong to. (laughs) Indeed, it is. It is a good church to belong to, the companion of those who fear God and who keep his precepts. As we close this morning, we have a little bit of time, so I want to just invite you to quiet your heart. I started with this question, what does it look like to live a worthy life? And we discovered this morning that it looks like taking up the posture of humility, gentleness, patience, and love so that we can pursue the unity Christ desires the church to have. So as we close this morning, I'll just ask you straight up, how's that going for you? How's that going for you? What has your posture been like towards others in the church? Maybe our church, but maybe even the the bigger church. Are you leading with humility? Or do you think more highly of yourself than you ought? Are you overly critical? Or do you bear with one another in love? Can you honestly say you are making every effort in your life to keep the unity of the church? Have you mixed up uniformity for unity? I said it in the beginning, I'll say it again. Satan would like nothing more than to divide us as a church. So we're going to take some time. You see there's some space, a little bit of space on your notes at the bottom there, maybe the back too. Why don't you allow room in your heart for God to search you and to know you. If there's anything that he lays on your heart, that you just write that down and maybe do something about it. Nothing becomes dynamic until it becomes specific. And God speaks to us specifically. So let's spend some time in prayer asking him to examine us. Is there a relationship in your life that's maybe gone sideways and you realize, I haven't taken up the posture, Christ wants me to. Maybe you've come from another church and you've found yourself bad-mouthing it. What, What does it look like to be unified? find yourself having a critical spirit this isn't the music I want that it's not the kind of preaching I want that's whatever not the Sunday school class I want what where does that spirit come from what does it do father we thank you that you are compassionate God that you love us even in our weakness. We thank you for the church, for the grand vision you had of bringing all of us as individuals full of pride, bringing us together to form one body, given one spirit, one hope, one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father of all, one faith. Make us one. And if there's anything you need to point out in my life that I need to do after this service this week, let me not hesitate. Let me do everything in my power to keep the unity that you have already given us. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite our members of the prayer team to come forward, and we're going to close this way. Why don't you stand? As I mentioned, the early church perhaps viewed these verses as a creed that they would say out loud together. So let's leave with these words on our mouths this morning. It says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.